Part One, Chapter Ten of the Secret City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Secret City by Hugh Walpole. Part One, Chapter Ten. We were approaching Christmas. The weather of these weeks was wonderfully beautiful, sharply cold, the sky pale bird's egg blue, the ice and the snow glittering, shining with a thousand colors. There began now a strange relationship between Markovitch and myself. There was something ineffectual and pessimistic about me that made Russians often feel in me a kindred soul. At the front, Russians had confided in me again and again, but that was not astonishing, because they confided in everyone. Nevertheless, they felt that I was less English than the rest, and rather blamed me in their minds, I think, for being so. I don't know what it was that suddenly decided Markovitch to make me part of his life. I certainly did not on my side make any advances. One evening he came to see me and stayed for hours. Then he came two or three times within the following fortnight. He gave me the effect of not caring in the least whether I was there or no, whether I replied or remained silent, whether I asked questions or simply pursued my own work. And I, on my side, had soon in my consciousness his odd, irascible, nervous, pleading, shy, and boastful figure painted permanently so that his actual physical presence seemed to be unimportant. There he was, as he liked to stand up against the white stove in my drafty room, his rather dirty, nervous hands waving in front of me, his thin hair on end, his ragged beard giving his eyes an added expression of anxiety. His body was a poor affair, his legs thin and uncertain, an incipient stomach causing his waistcoat suddenly to fall inward somewhere halfway up his chest, his feet in ill-shapen boots, and his neck absurdly small inside his high stiff collar. His stiff collar jutting sharply into his weak chin was perhaps his most striking feature. Most Russians of his careless habits wore soft collars, or student shirts that fastened tight about the neck, but this high white collar was with markovitch a sign and a symbol the banner of his early ambitions it was the first and last of him he changed it every day it was always high and sharp gleaming and clean and it must have hurt him very much he wore with it a shabby black tie that ran as far up the collar as it could go and there was a sense of pathos and struggle about this tie, as though it were a wild animal trying to escape over an imprisoning wall. He would stand clutching my stove, as though it assured his safety in a dangerous country. Then suddenly he would break away from it, and start careering up and down my room, stopping for an instant to gaze through my window at the sea and the ships, then off again, swinging his arms, his anxious eyes searching everywhere for confirmation of the ambitions that still inflamed him. For the root and soul of him was that he was greatly ambitious. He had been born, I learnt, in some small town in the Moscow province, and his father had been a schoolmaster in the place, 
a kind of Parodinov, I should imagine, from the things that Markovitch told me about him. The father, at any rate, was a mean, malicious, and grossly sensual creature, and he finally lost his post through his improper behavior toward some of his own small pupils. The family then came to evil days, and at a very early age young Markovitch was sent to Petrograd to earn what he could with his wits. He managed to secure the post of a secretary to an old fellow who was engaged in writing the life of his grandfather, a difficult book, as the grandfather had been a voluminous letter-writer, and this correspondence had to be collected and tabulated. For months and even years, young Markovitch laboriously endeavored to arrange these old yellow letters, dull, pathetic, incoherent. His patron grew slowly imbecile, but through the fogs that increasingly besieged him saw only this one thing clearly, that the letters must be arranged. He kept Markovitch relentlessly at his table, allowing him no pleasures, feeding him miserably, and watching him personally undress every evening, lest he should have secreted certain letters somewhere on his body. There was something almost sadist, apparently, in the old gentleman's observation of Markovitch's labors. It was during these years that Markovitch's ambitions took flame. He was always, as he told me, having amazing ideas. I asked him, what kind of ideas? Ideas by which the world would be transformed. Those letters were all old, you know, and dusty and yellow and eaten, some of them by rats and they'd lie on the floor and i'd try to arrange them in little piles according to their dates there'd be rows of little packets all across the floor and then somehow when one's back was turned they'd move all of their own wicked purpose and one would have to begin all over again bending with one's back aching and seeing always the stupid handwriting i hated it ivan andreevich of course i hated it but i had to do it for the money and i lived in his house too and as he got madder it wasn't pleasant he wanted me to sleep with him because he saw things in the middle of the night and he'd catch hold of me and scream and twist his fat legs round me no it wasn't agreeable on sympatishni safzem he wasn't a nice man at all but while i was sorting the letters these ideas would come to me and i would be on fire it seemed to me that I was to save the world, and that it would not be difficult if only one might be resolute enough. That was the trouble, to be resolute. One might say to oneself, On Friday, October 13th, I will do so and so, and then on Saturday, November 3rd, I will do so and so, and then on December 24th, it will be finished. But then, on October 13th, one is maybe in quite another mood. One is even ill, possibly, and so nothing is done, and the whole plan is ruined. I would think all day as to how I would make myself resolute, and I would say, when old Fyodor Stepanovich would pinch my ear and deny me more soup, Aha! You wait, you old pig-face! You wait until I've mastered my resolution, and then I'll show you. I fancied, for instance, that if I could command myself sufficiently, I could just go to people and say, You must have bathhouses like this and this. I had all the plans ready, you know, 
and in the hottest room you have couches like this, and you have a machine that beats your back. So, so, so. Not those dirty old things that leave bits of green stuff all over you, and so on, and so on. But better ideas than that, ideas about poverty and wealth, no more kings, you know, nor police, but not your cheap socialism that fellows like Boris Nikolaevich shout about. No, real happiness, so that no one need work as I did for an old beast who didn't give you enough soup, and have to keep quiet all the same and say nothing. Ideas came like flocks of birds, so many that I couldn't gather them all, but had sometimes to let the best ones go. And I had no one to talk to about them, only the old cook and the girl in the kitchen who had a child by old Theodore that he wouldn't own, but she swore it was his, and told everyone the time when it happened, and where it was, and all. Then the old man fell downstairs and broke his neck, and he'd left me some money to go on with the letters. At this point, Markovitch's face would become suddenly triumphantly malevolent, like the face of a schoolboy who remembers a trick that he played on a hated master. Do you think I went on with them, Ivan Andreevich? No, not I, but I kept the money. That was wrong of you, I would say gravely. Yes, wrong, of course, but hadn't he been wrong always? And, after all, isn't everybody wrong? We Russians have no conscience, you know, about anything, and that's simply because we can't make up our minds as to what's wrong and what's right. And even if we do make up our minds, it seems a pity not to let yourself go when you may be dead tomorrow. Wrong and right, what words? Who knows? Perhaps it would have been the greatest thing in the world to go on with the letters, wasting everybody's time, and for myself, too, who had so many ideas that life simply would never be long enough to think them all out. It seemed that shortly after this he had luck with a little invention, and this piece of luck was, I should imagine, the ruin of his career, as pieces of luck so often are the ruin of careers. I could never understand what precisely his invention was, it had something to do with the closing of doors, something that you pulled at the bottom of the door, so that it shut softly and didn't creak with the wind. A Jew bought the invention and gave Markovitch enough money to lead him confidently to believe that his fortune was made. Of course it was not. He never had luck with an invention again, but he was bursting with pride and happiness, set up house for himself in a little flat on the Vesely Ostrov, and met Vera Mikhailovna. I wish I could give some true idea of the change that came over him when he reached this part of his story. When he had spoken of his childhood, his father, his first struggles to live, his life with his old patron, he had not attempted to hide the evil, the malice, the envy that there was in his soul. He had even emphasized it, I might fancy, for my own especial benefit, so that I might see that he was not such a weak, romantic, sentimental creature as I had supposed, although God knows I had never fancied him romantic. Now, when he spoke of his wife, his whole body changed. She married me out of pity, he told me. I hated her for that, and I loved her for that. 
and I hate and love her for it still. Here I interrupted him, and told him that perhaps it was better that he should not confide in me the inner history of his marriage. Why not? he asked me suspiciously. Because I'm only an acquaintance, you scarcely know me. You may regret it afterwards when you're in another mood. Oh, you English, he said contemptuously. You're always to be trusted. As a nation you're not, but as one man to another, you're not interested enough in human nature to give away secrets. Well, tell me what you like, I said, only I make no promises about anything. I don't want you to, he retorted. I'm only telling you what everyone knows. Wasn't I aware from the first moment that she married me out of pity? And didn't they all know it, and laugh, and tell her she was a fool? She knew that she was a fool, too, but she was very young, and thought it fine to sacrifice herself for an idea. I was ill, and I talked to her about my future. She believed in it. She thought I could do wonderful things if only someone looked after me and at the same time despised me for wanting to be looked after. And then I wasn't so ugly as I am now. She had some money of her own, and we took in lodgers, and I loved her, as I love her now, so that I could kiss her feet and then hate her, because she was kind to me. She only cares for her sister Nina, and because I was jealous of the girl, and hated to see Vera good to her, I had her to live with us, just to torture myself, and show that I was stronger than all of them if I liked. And so I am, than her beastly uncle the doctor, and all the rest of them. Let him do what he likes. It was the first time that he had mentioned Semyonov. He's coming back, I said. Oh, is he? snarled Markovitch. Well, he'd better look out. Then his voice, his face, even the shape of his body changed once again. I'm not a bad man, Ivan Andreevich. No, I'm not. You think so, of course, and I don't mind if you do. But I love Vera, and if she loved me, I could do great things. I could astonish them all. I hear them say, Ah, that Nicholas Markovitch, he's no good with his inventions. What did a fine woman like that marry such a man for? I know what they say. But I'm strong if I like. I gave up drink when I wished. I can give up anything. And when I succeed, they'll see. And then we'll have enough money not to need these people staying with us and despising us. No one despises you, Nikolai Leontovich, I interrupted. And what does it matter if they do? He fiercely retorted. I despise them, all of them. It's easy for them, when everything goes well with them, but with me everything goes wrong, everything. But I'm strong enough to make everything go right, and I will. This was, for the time, the end of his confidences. He had, I was sure, something further to tell me, some plan, some purpose, but he decided suddenly that he would keep it to himself, although I am convinced that he had only told me his earlier story in order that I might understand this new idea of his. But I did not urge him to tell me. My interest in life had not yet sufficiently revived. It was, after all, none of my business. For the rest, it seemed that he had been wildly enthusiastic about the war at its commencement. He had had great ideas about Russia, 
But now he had given up all hope. Russia was doomed, and Germany, whom he hated and admired, would eat her up. And what did it matter? Perhaps Germany would run Russia, and then there would be order and less thieving, and this horrible war would stop. How foolish it had been to suppose that anyone in Russia would ever do anything. They were all fools and knaves, and idle in Russia, like himself. And so he left me. End of Part 1 Chapter 10